Who do you think the psalm was about? It started with David, but it certainly didn't finish with him. This psalm, as many of the other psalms in the Psalter, point us to our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate and eternal King. And we're going to read his words now in John chapter 5, the verses 1 through 29. John chapter 5, the verses 1 through 29. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life 
and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So far, we now turn to Lord's Day 13 of the Catechism. This will provide us with a starting point as we consider what Scripture says about Christ as God's only begotten Son. Lord's Day 13. Why is he called God's only begotten Son, since we also are children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption, through grace, for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, a few decades ago, Australia was still a nice place to live for most people. These days, that's starting to change. One place where you really notice this is in public education. We're quite sheltered from this problem because we have our own Christian schools, but the public education system is in serious trouble, and it has been for quite some time. One of the main problems is a total lack of discipline. In fact, according to one international body, quote, Australian classrooms are among the least disciplined in the world, end quote. There's no respect for authority. In fact, almost half of school principals across Australia report that they have been assaulted this past year. And it's not just students that are the problem. There are principals who have had their teeth knocked out by parents who disagreed with them on the way that they handled their children. How can we as a society expect children to know better when this is the sort of thing that they learn from their parents? Bullying is also a huge problem in many schools. Of course, social media has added to that problem exponentially. It's quite easy for a student to bully another student and then have a friend film that encounter and then upload it to social media. Then all, everyone else piles in on it. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are high rates of depression and dysfunction among many youth today. What do these people need more than anything else? They need authority in their lives. They need someone to guide them when they are puzzled, rebuke them when they're wrong, and love them unconditionally. In other words, they need a father. But where will society find that kind of a father when their role models are so bad? Scripture tells us that God has revealed himself as that father. God is the ultimate source of authority. He guides the lives of his children. He rebukes them when they sin. 
He loves his children unconditionally. In fact, the love that the father has for his children does not depend on anything they have done. It doesn't even depend on what they haven't done. It depends on his son. The love that the father has for his children depends on his son. Now, that father has always been a father because he's always had a son. That son is Jesus Christ. Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God. We, however, are children of God through adoption, through grace for Christ's sake. In other words, the only reason why we can have God as our Father is because the Son has ransomed us, freed us, and so made it possible for the Father to adopt us. But what does that mean, that Jesus is the eternal, natural Son of God? We, we probably don't think about that phrase very often. Maybe some of us treat it as if it's just a metaphor. But think about it. If his sonship is just a metaphor, what about ours? And if ours is in doubt, then how can we have any kind of security in life? If you don't understand his relationship with the Father, how can you understand yours? And if you don't understand yours, then how can your faith be meaningful? So it's particularly important for us to get this right. This afternoon we will consider these matters by asking ourselves a question. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son? Do you believe that Jesus is God's only begotten Son? And as we consider that question, we will consider His glory and His grace. So if we want to understand what all this is about, we first need to turn to our text the scene is set in the holy city, the city of Jerusalem. Jesus performs a great miracle by healing a man who has been an invalid for 38 years. Now the Jews, which in this context means the Jewish religious leaders, don't have a problem with him having done that as such. They don't have an issue with him healing someone. The problem for them is that he's done it on a Sabbath, which they consider to be a violation of the Sabbath rest. So Jesus answers them, my father, my father is working until now and I am working. His point is that God is at work on the Sabbath in the sense that he upholds the universe. He rested on the seventh day in the sense that he stopped creating, but by his providence he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures. You remember that from Lord's Day 10. And so God's providence has never ended. God, from moment to moment, upholds the universe and all that is in it. And he does so on the Sabbath as well, which is why Jesus says, my father is working until now, and I am working. In other words, he's imitating his father. Now the Jewish leaders consider this to be blasphemous, and so they seek to kill him. In response, Jesus explains to them something about this relationship between himself and his father. He says in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Now what does he mean when he says the Son can do nothing of his own accord? He's not suggesting that he's powerless. The point is that his will and the Father's will are one and the same. It's not that the Father wills one thing, but the Son wills another. Rather, whenever the Son acts, He's carrying out the will of His Father. 
In other words, they share exactly the same will, even though it comes from the Father. That's why in verse 19 he says that the Son can do nothing of his own accord, whereas in verse 21 he says the Son gives life to whom he will. In other words, they share one will. Stronger yet, they share one life. Verse 26 is central to this whole question, and it's also the most challenging verse for us. We're going to have to look at it very carefully, verse 26. It says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So, the Father has life in himself. That means that he does not depend on anyone or anything else for his life. Every other created thing depends on God for its existence, but God himself does not depend on anyone. God has always had life in himself, endless, abundant life with no beginning and no end. Now, if um, you have been in my Belgian confession class, then you will remember that the theological term for this is aseity. Aseity. To have aseity means to have life in yourself without deriving it from anyone else. And only God has this property. No one else does. But think about this. As soon as you define this word, you have a problem. The son also has the exact same life in himself, right? He says that in verse 26. As the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. In other words, the son also has a satiety. But how is this possible? Because by definition, if he has life in himself, he cannot have received it. If he receives it, it stops being life in himself. It becomes life that he derives from another. So does this verse not become one big self-contradiction then? The answer is no. This verse is not a big self-contradiction. If you understand what it means to be begotten. See, for us, this whole idea of sonship is tainted by time. For us, there is a point in time at which a man becomes a father. And the relationship between fathers and sons changes over time as well because a son may become a father himself. So when we read about the father and the son in the context of the Trinity, it's hard for us not to take our own ideas about what it means to be a father and son and to read that back into the Trinity and into our text. But we need to think about the relationship between the father and the son in different terms. Ephesians 3 verse 15 says that God is the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So that means that all of our earthly relationships are named after the heavenly one. They reflect the heavenly one on a lesser level, but that does not go the other way around. In other words, if we look at that phrase, the only begotten Son of God, and we try to fit that into our own experiences, we're going to get stuck. So here's the key. The focus on this verse, verse 26, in our reading, the focus is not on time. The focus is on relationship. If you were to ask, when did the father beget his son? Or when did the father give the son life in himself? You're asking the wrong question. Life in himself means exactly the same thing for the father as it does for the son. Because both of them are one God. 
The point of this father-son terminology is not to make us think about time, but about relationship. Their relationship. And the only way you can really make sense of that is if you go back to the Nicene Creed. We think of it in the words of the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed summarizes this brilliantly. That's why it's been around for 17 centuries. Just this afternoon, we confessed our faith together in the words of that very creed. We confessed that we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages. So this begetting of the Son is something that takes place outside of time. It should not be thought of as a physical process in any way, shape, or form. Instead, the relationship between the Father and the Son is more like the relationship between sun and sunlight. When the sun shines overhead, you feel the sunlight, right? You cannot separate these two things. You cannot separate the sun from sunlight. Or it's like the relationship between a thought and a word. When someone speaks a word, it expresses a thought. You cannot separate the word from the thought. You cannot have a word that does not represent the thing that it stands for. And in the same way, God the Son is the expression of God the Father. In theology, this doctrine is called the eternal generation of the Son. But remember, this generating or this begetting should not be thought of in human terms. Just like the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son is not meant to be thought of in human terms either. Remember, we confess that the Son is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made. One of the reasons, again, why we love the Nicene Creed is because it takes something that uh, is so profound and so complex, and it, it puts it in words that are very simple. But this is not just a piece of Nicene doctrine. This is Scripture itself. Scripture is clear on this as well. Think about, think about John 1. In the beginning was a word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. You heard that? In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Or Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Or Hebrews 1 verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This is not a one-time thing. The Son never stops radiating the Father's glory. The Father never stops begetting His Son. It is a constant, eternal begetting. It is the eternal generation of the Son. Now some of you might think, well, so what? Is, is this, this sounds like a piece of specialist theology. Is, is this doctrine of eternal generation really so important? Well, it is. Without this doctrine, you have no way of accounting for the Trinity and its relationships. Think about it. We have the scriptural terminology that has been given to us. We cannot get away from it. Scripture uses the word Father, and it uses the word Son. It teaches us God is a Father, God has a Son, the Son is God as well. Christ himself taught us those things. These things come out in this very chapter that we read together. So you cannot just use these words and then ignore the relationships that they're meant to represent. If Jesus truly is a son, he must have been begotten. 
If he is truly God, if he truly has life in himself, he has no beginning and no end. If God is truly father, he must have always been a father. He didn't become a father after creating and adopting us. Because God doesn't change. The reason he revealed himself to us as a father is because he is a father. Because he always has been a father. Because there is no beginning and no end to his fatherhood. Therefore, if you reject this doctrine of eternal generation, you ultimately reject the father himself. And then what have you got left? The shell of the Christian faith with no content. The Father revealed himself through the Son. There is no other way. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus said, no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal himself or to reveal him. God has revealed himself as a father, but the only way for us to know him as father is through his son. Consider then the great glory that is due to the, fa- to the son who shares in the glory of the father. Consider also the very solemn warning in verse 23 of our passage. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. We should take this seriously, that there is no other way to commune with the Father except by doing so through the Son. So this makes a relationship between the Father and the Son, and of course also the Holy Spirit, central to our salvation. So how do we honor the Son? We honor Him by believing Him. And when we do that, something wonderful happens. That we're drawn into the eternal life that exists between the Father and the Son. We're drawn into that life. And obviously it doesn't mean that we become divine or anything silly like that. We will always be created beings. We will always have creaturely limitations. But it does mean that the eternal, uncreated God actually has fellowship with us. That we can actually commune with Him. We do that through faith in His promises. And Jesus assures us of that. In verse 24 of our reading, He says... Truly, truly, I say to you, and truly, truly is an oath. This is an oath formulation. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So through faith, we already share in that divine life now. Through faith, we already have communion with the Father now. Peter writes about that in a second letter when he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them, listen, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Is that not a marvelous promise to have? Consider his glory and consider also his grace. Our second point. How is this possible that we who are sinners should become partakers of the divine nature? How, how can this be? Because Christ is our Lord. As Lord's Day 13 puts it, he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with 
his precious blood and has freed us from the power of the devil to make us his own possession. So he uses the word ransom. He has ransomed us. What is a ransom? Well, a ransom is a price paid to release someone from captivity. By nature, we're captive to sin and the devil. Jesus said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin, actually, is a slave to sin. By nature, we are sinners who need to be ransomed. But then the question is, well, who was a ransom paid to? And people in the past have sometimes said, well, the ransom was paid to Satan. And on one level, that seems to make sense. Because the logic would be, if, you, if you're a slave to Satan, would it not make sense for Christ to give himself to Satan so that you could be ransomed? To give himself to Satan instead of us. But that's not correct. It is true, of course, that those who do not belong to Christ belong to Satan. But belonging to Satan is not your biggest problem if you're an unbeliever. It's not the biggest problem. The biggest problem is the wrath of God. In the words of Lord's Day 5, God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or through another. God's justice must be satisfied. That's the only way that you can ever be received into favor with God again. Scripture teaches us that the wages of sin is death. Death in its ultimate form is eternal separation from God and from his blessings. It means that God turns his back on you forever. So the Father sent his Son into the world to take away our sins. Christ satisfied God's justice by suffering the full extent of God's punishment instead of us. Christ ransomed us with his precious blood, says the catechism. Blood. It uses that word blood, a real graphic word in the middle of the pages of the catechism because he really lived, he really bled, he really died. Christ was born into this world so that he could present his perfect human life as a sacrifice to the Father, his Father, so that all of our sins could be taken away, so that God could accept us as his children again. Consider then the exceeding wickedness of sin. It took the death of God's own Son in His human nature to get us back. Canons of Dort, chapter 2, article 4, reminds us of that when it says, why His death has infinite value. This death is of such great value and worth because a person who submitted to it is not only a true and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, for these qualifications were necessary for our Savior. Now, did you notice that? It specifically draws our attention to the Son of God as the only begotten Son. We get that word coming back again here in the canons of Dort. I'll read it again. This death is of such great value and worth because the person who submitted to it is not only a true and perfectly holy man, but also the only begotten Son of God, of the same eternal and infinite essence with the Father and the Holy Spirit, for these qualifications were necessary for our Savior. So it says this was God's only begotten Son. He had to become a true and perfectly holy man. And only that death was worthy of taking away our sins. Our sins must be very evil if it took the death of God's only begotten Son to 
to, to get us back. He ransomed us from all our sins. Every sin, every wandering thought, every careless word, every wicked deed. Can't, can't, can't you think of any examples from your own life? Sometimes our greatest sin is that we downplay our own sinfulness. Is that not sinful in and of itself? We, we feel like we don't have that much to confess. That's because we're blind to our true nature. But then surely, surely this confession regarding the only begotten Son of God should open our eyes. Nothing less than the life of that Son would do to take away our sins. If that doesn't break our heart and hearts, then what will? Consider then God's determination to make us His own possession. The eternal, natural Son of God became incarnate so that He could redeem us, so that we could become children of God by adoption, children of His Father, so that we could pass from death to life, and that life is forever. That life is forever. It will never end. It is forever because it is fueled by the life of Christ, and He is forever. He will always be God's Son, so we will always be God's children. And that's where our security lies. That's why this matters. That's why this is important. Our security lies in the perfect obedience of God's only begotten Son. It lies in the perfect love of the Father. It does not lie in us, not in our accomplishments, not in our merits. It lies in the perfect obedience of God's only begotten Son. God will never let us go. His fatherhood is forever because it is grounded in His eternal nature. That's what we need. We live in a world that has forgotten what it means to have a father. And it's a world that drastically needs one. God's only begotten son shows us what it means to have a father. And through faith in him, God becomes our father as well. May we then always live as his children. And may that give us security in the week that lies ahead. Amen.